hey, this is Ed. So this is a podcast, is that right? This is. Okay. We're officially podcasting right now. That's awesome. This is Straight from the Cutter's Mouth. Welcome to Straight from the Cutter's Mouth, a retina podcast. At least once a week, we aim to bring you insights and perspectives from the world of vitreoretinal surgery. I am your host, Dr. Jay Schreeder. Today, on episode 269, I have the pleasure of being joined by three of my retina colleagues to do another complications rapid-fire episode. This time, we discuss complications you may encounter when placing a secondary intraocular lens. We discuss various techniques, including the modified Yamane technique, uh, sutured lenses using Gore-Tex suture, and anterior chamber intraocular lenses. This is our first episode post-Thanksgiving, and hopefully you all had a restful and happy and safe holiday. Obviously, this is a very different holiday season than most, but again, hopefully you're able to find time with your family and your cherished ones to uh, reflect and spend some time thinking about this year. Again, uh, a lot of tumult in the world this year, a lot of things as physicians we've had to encounter, but uh, I just want to again say that you know every single one of you, the, the care you deliver, everything you're doing for the medical community is appreciated. And uh, a lot for the, us to be grateful for. I'm very grateful to all of you uh, as colleagues, as friends, and grateful that uh, you continue to support and listen to this program. Remember that you can find relevant financial disclosures for participants in the episode description, as well as a link to go to the American Academy of Ophthalmology website to claim CME credits for this podcast episode and other podcast episodes. Straight from the Cutter's Mouth is now happy to be joined by three retina specialists for our latest edition of Surgical Complications and How to Manage Them. Uh, the all-time popular game show. Uh, first in alphabetical order, Dr. M. Ali Khan uh, from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Ali, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jay. Next in alphabetical order from Ballot Kenwood, Pennsylvania, because he thinks he's fancy, Dr. Ajay Kurian. <laughs> Thanks for having me, Jay. Uh, just for the record, Ali is also from Ballot Kenwood, Pennsylvania. <laughs> but that's not how he prefers to be introduced. <laughs> Last but not least, Dr. Sriji Patel joining us from Nashville, Tennessee. Sriji, welcome. Thanks for having me, Jay. Well, Sriji, you're one of our defending champions. Uh, we've retired Sarah Reed to the Tournament of Champions for complications. So we're going to do intraocular lens complications, kind of our second part to vitrectomy complications. We did an episode on buccal complications. We did an episode on vitrectomy complications, part one. This is going to focus on intraocular lens issues since retina specialists often are doing secondary lens cases. So the first topic, first category, anterior chamber intraocular lenses. We're not going to talk about why you should do them or patient selection. We're just going to talk about what do you do surgically. I'll let Ali go first. Ajay, oh, excuse me, Ali, when you start and make to, you say, hey, I'm going to place an ACI well at this point, how do you size your ACI wells? How do you, what do you look at? Do you look at the intraocular lens couch? Do you do anything on the field to measure? How do you size the wound? What kind of wound do you prefer? And then how do you get the haptics to align where you want them? Where do you typically leave your haptics? Yeah, so for me, um, I usually, you know, doing the case, I, I rarely plan for an ACI well. So if I'm if I do, doing an ACI well, it's kind of spur in the moment in the case that I'm deciding to do so. But um, in terms of the first part, sizing it correctly, um, you know, technically the, the correct way to do it is to use the white to white measurements, which I never use from the IOL master or any of the IOL calculations beforehand. I, I measure myself with a caliper. And then, um, you know, I, we usually use the Alcon MTA series lenses. So go ahead and, and, and choose the appropriate size for my own white to white measurement. Uh, for me, it's always going to be a scleral tunnel wound. I don't do a clear corneal um, incision for, for an ACI well given the size. 
so usually you know measure around seven seven eight uh, millimeters in length and um, try to make the tunnel as smooth as possible without going too shallow or too deep which is obviously easier easier said than done and then um, my haptics are, are arranged at three and nine o'clock rather than um, six and twelve so I do rotate it within the anterior chamber um, and kind of fit it within the uh, within the angle there so that's that's my typical uh, step-by-step approach now Ajay I know that Things never, ever don't go according to plan. There's a double negative in there in your operating room. (laughs) But what do you do? You make a wound, and all of a sudden there's a bunch of iris in your wound, whether it's a tunnel or a corneal wound. And what do you? How do you handle that? So the biggest thing with uh, iris coming out of the wound, you have to think about a higher pressure um, coming from inside the eye compared to outside of the eye, and so. I always check to make sure that my infusion is clamped um, because that's one of the biggest things that can lead to the iris uh, popping out. There's a lot of posterior pressure. Um, once I make sure that the infusion is clamped, there's no other problems going on, like a cordial detachment or anything like that, then I would focus on trying to get that iris back in. And so I usually try to sweep the iris back in with uh, some sort of viscoelastic. And so I, I move it in first with the cannula and then I deposit some viscoelastic on top of it to try to keep it back. Good points. Point to Ajay. You guys are tied. That's excellent. Sriji, I know that nothing ever goes wrong in your operating room, but let's say as you're rotating the haptics, it tends to, it gets hooked on the iris and then you start to get some bleeding from the iris. Sometimes people report it even you can get an iatrogenic irritodialysis when trying to rotate ACI well haptics. Any tip trips for rotating those haptics in terms of maybe you're getting stuck, that haptics are getting caught. Any tips based on the design of an ACI well? Sure. So, you know, obviously this has never happened to me, but I'm, I can imagine a scenario where this could happen. Um, what I usually do for rotating the haptics is I'll take a Sinsky or a Kuglin hook and I'll um, grab the distal edge and slowly just try and inch it around. Um, I, Similar to Ali, I'll put my uh, haptics at 3 and 9 o'clock. And so usually what I can do is gently just go back and forth with the distal and proximal, slowly moving it around. I like this technique because it helps avoid any big maneuvers where you could possibly pierce iris and um, or have the haptic go through iris, which can get very tricky. Um, and it also helps preventing any, you know, angle damage and hopefully any bleeding. So that's typically the way I do it. Basically just slowly rotating it until the haptics are oriented away from the, the area of this scleral tunnel. And Ali, last question and the topic of ACI wells. Post-operatively, or let's say you get a new referral for an ACI well, and there's a referral note saying ACI well needs to be exchanged. What are kind of your indications that an ACI well is not correctly sized or not correctly placed? What sort of things do you look for in exam? Um, generally, kind of the typical UD syndrome type uh, things are what what I look for in particular. So if there's significant um, anterior chamber inflammation, if there's any hyphema and elevated intraocular pressure or CME are particularly the clinical endpoints that I'm looking for. Many of these people, despite having a, a poorly sized or placed ACL, can still have good vision with refraction. So if their vision is doing okay, I definitely go over the risks and benefits of doing a bigger surgery to explant you know, a, a large ACI well and, and, and placing, you know, secondary eye well. So it's usually a clinical endpoint, um, typically in the in the realm of the UG syndrome features. Terrific. I now know how to place an ACI well. This was great. Next point. Any any uh, Ajay Sriji, any final points in ACI wells? Anything else you want to add? 
The bonus round, you get say, the bonus um, points. There you go. I would wait on making the PI until after that ACI well is in its final position because uh, every once in a while that PI can lead to the haptic uh, getting caught in it. Great point. And I've had to exchange, unfortunately, a couple of ACI wells placed uh, by other providers where the haptic is in the PI, and that is no bueno for well good placement uh, and very difficult to remove once it kind of scars into place. Uh, Sriji, Ajay sucked up for bonus points. Anything else in from your end? Uh, to that point, also make sure there's no tuck of the iris. You know, you really want to have a pretty symmetric and round pupil shape. If for some reason it's not, you could be uh, grabbing a little bit of iris with the haptic. You want to make sure it's positioned uh, well to avoid any of the uh, complications that Ali mentioned. Great. And, and I think Ali maybe mentioned this up front, but I, I would reiterate it's important. I think it's really valuable to use a pupillary constricting agent um, that will prevent, for example, the ACI well tipping, that the haptic should never go below the iris. You should try to keep your pupil small. And that will also kind of show you if there's tuck, if the pupil's not rounding. So great, great point. Well, we are going to move on to Acrios placement. I unfortunately baited Ali and Sriji into answering more questions about ACI well, and now Ali is in his wheelhouse category, which is the Acrios lens. So Ali, for an Acrios placement, that's a controversial question. How much vitrectomy do you do as a retina specialist when you're planning to suture in an Acrios or Invista lens. And do you open the conjunctiva or go transconjunctivally as, been, as others have reported? So I aim for uh, a pretty complete vitrectomy. I, I don't think you necessarily need to do a you know, 360 degree shave under skull depression, but certainly anteriorly, there's residual capsule or any, any kind of anterior gel that could affect the passage of your sutures and um, kind of the setting of your acreos or mx60 lens um you know underneath the iris plane i i look for that area in particular so i think your anterior vitrectomy has to be pretty good your peripheral vitrectomy elsewhere could be you know typical good vitrectomy nothing too too crazy in, in terms of leaving too much gel and nothing too crazy in, in terms of needing a, a short skirt um the second question about going transconj or doing a pyridomy, um, I think both both ways are fine. Um, I, I think for people who are first learning the technique, I think doing the, uh, the pyridomy is probably uh, better so you don't get kind of caught up in the conj afterwards. But if you're kind of slick enough and, and practice enough in the technique and you can kind of uh, skirt the Gore-Tex underneath the, the conj into one of your other um, sclerotomy sites. I think doing it transconj will make things quicker. You don't have to use, you know, wet field cautery and that sort of thing. But um, I, I typically will do the, the pyridomy first, and I think that's certainly a way to learn uh, the technique. Great, great. Ajay, what about if you're while doing your vitrectomy, you find retinal pathology? And I'll range it from lattice, retinal hole, retinal tear to retinal detachment. Does that alter your plan if you go and plan to do a suture lens? And at what point does the pathology dictate that maybe you don't pursue a sutured lens? So I think the biggest concern with the acros is that there have been reports of opacification um, with any sort of tamponade that's uh, placed inside the eye. And so if there's any um, need for a tamponade based on the retinal pathology, then I would say that, that I would not use an acreos. Um, you could still do a suture technique using the Invista lens um, or convert to a different uh, technique, but if there's anything that, that definitely requires a tamponade, then then I would definitely say that the acros is out for me. Um, if it's something where it's just like a incidental hole or, or tear or something like that, I think you have the option of, of continuing to use the acros and um, with 
the low chance of them developing further retinal pathology that would require a tamponade agent. Um, but I usually tend to shy away from using the acros and, and any eye that I'm concerned about having any risk for retinal detachment, just because if that eye does develop um, a retinal detachment and needs tamponade later, and the acreos opacifies, you basically have no other treatment for it other than taking it out and, and replacing with another lens. And so that's a lot for, for somebody to go through. Um, and so I usually would switch at that point if there's anything that made me concerned about uh, a risk for retinal detachment. Sriji, what happens if, so let's say you've gotten to the point, you decided to put the lens in, you've threaded some of the sutures in and out of the eye. We won't go through the technique in detail. People who are not familiar can look up the technique. There's plenty of videos online. But what if, as you're putting the lens in, you notice that it flips on you as you're putting it in? Why did that happen, and what can you do to prevent that? And what do you do once it flips? So flipping of the lens is typically, there's a couple of things. If you're tugging on the, um, the uh, suture, um, and as you insert it, if you tug on one preferentially, that can sometimes lead to rotating, especially depending on the angle in which you're inserting the IOL. And so one of the things that I'm keenly aware about is making sure there's a little bit of slack so that the ends are not too tight and you can insert the IOL behind the iris plane. And then usually I'll quickly grab a Sinsky hook and push it a little posteriorly and get an idea about where my sutures are and not make them too tight. This prevents, um, exerting any extra tension on one side or the other and preventing that flipping. That being said, I've seen it flip uh, before. And so usually I, I try and make sure that I can, um, just like I mentioned, push the IOL back a little bit and allow myself to visualize where each suture is, untangle any edges that could be tangled, and then allow it to flip back into the orientation that you want it to be in. Ollie, any other thoughts on flipping? Yeah, I mean, so for the this technique, um, you know, you have the option of externalizing two of the the suture ends, either the nasal temporal side or externalizing technically up to all four of the suture ends before you place the lens in the eye. So I do at least three. Uh, I think if you externalize three suture ends and then place the eye well, it's almost impossible to flip because you can simply pull on each of the three externalized suture and it, it typically recenters the the lens. So um, I, I externalize three before I place the, the lens inside the eye. And then if, um, like Sriji mentioned, you don't want to have too much slack or, or too little slack on, on any one suture uh, side of the lens before placing the, the lens in the eye, um, simply because that, for whatever reason, just just kind of is asking for the, the lens to twist or the sutures to twist. But if you externalize three, I think you're going to be fine uh, almost no matter what you do. And Ali, just for the listeners, how large of a wound are you creating? What's the minimum size you kind of do? And you maybe you can put it in numerical terms, but maybe in more practical terms, how do you know how big to make that wound when you're putting in an Acreos lens, for example? So I think using a caliper is a good idea. Um, I use a 275 keratone, but then use a caliper to measure around three and a half to give a, uh, give me a sense of how big my wound needs to be. I think the, these, these sutures or suture techniques, what actually ultimately gets people in the end is if you mess up the cornea. So I don't like anybody trying to struggle pushing the lens through the corneal wound. So slightly oversizing it and placing one extra stitch, I think is not the end of the world rather than causing a bunch of corneal edema by uh, forcing it. So I, I use a caliper to measure three and a half and then and start with that. Now, Ajay, 
I'm sure this has never happened to you. But what happens if you put the lens in, you have all four strings and you pull, and that lens just isn't centering. It looks like it's tilting or it looks twisted somehow. What do you do at that point? And, and what, how do you troubleshoot that? So usually if there's some sort of issue with the centering, um, there's going to be some sort of issue with your sutures and your haptics. And so if, if everything is perfect, that lens will center really, really well without tilt if, if all of your turbos are placed in the right spot and equidistant from each other. But if you're seeing any any tilt or any any other problems there, you really have to inspect your um, haptics and the sutures. And so I usually move the lens over into the pupillary axis so that I can visualize the haptics and see exactly what's going on there with the sutures. And sometimes it's just a, a very small, um, like extra loop with some of the slack that was there with the suture, and that's easy to to fix. Sometimes you'll see like a big um, flip of the lens that's much harder to to fix um every once in a while you can run into issues where the suture needs to be rethread because it was an issue with um with how it was externalized i usually mark one set of the sutures so that i can try to keep track of uh, that just in case there's any issues um but if you need to re-suture it uh, i mean sorry rethread the the haptics it's definitely a little bit more challenging. I usually try to bring up the IOL side back into the anterior chamber that I'm going to be rethreading, And then I pass it through using like a max grip. Um, I usually externalize one um, of the eyelets and then out of the paracentesis or out of the wound, rethread that one. And then it's much easier to pass the other one um, through the second eyelet interocularly instead of trying to pass both through interocularly. Uh, but it's definitely uh, a much harder thing to rectify that when you're when it does happen. But I think the first step is to identify by visualizing the end uh, to make sure that there's no issue there. And then Sriji, this kind of ties into how to fix that situation. What happens if, if you accidentally unthread or cut your knot when you're trimming your vortex knot or break a suture? So I'll tell you, I had never seen this in person before until just last week. Went to rotate the knots, and when we turned the knot, the suture snapped. I thought, I've never seen that before. What do you do next? How do you fix a situation like this, or a situation where you have to undo a flip, where it's not just a simple loop? How, for example, would you go about re-threading a lens? Sure. So, you know, that's a pretty deflating situation when you finally get to that point, and you're rotating the knot, and it unravels or breaks. Um, what I would do at that point is I would make sure I, I would remove that entire, if it, the stitch is not savable, assuming so, I would remove that entire stitch, make sure you have the, the entire um, uh, suture out of there. And then you can usually typically easily pass through another stitch through the two eyelets, especially since on the other side, the IOL is pretty stable and fixated. And so usually what I'll do, um, as Ajay just said, is I'll bring one end um, into the anterior chamber, and that way I can thread the suture through there. Um, and usually I'll just do it, again, I'll just use a Sinsky hook for something like this. Um, and then you thread it through the other side, and then you can usually pull it out with a, force, with a max grip forceps. Um, and you can, very tip, you can easily um, slide the lens either posteriorly so you can view or, you know, tip it to the side a little bit, and that way you can view the haptics pretty easily. So it's a chore. I've had to do it myself, but it, it's certainly something that's within um, the scope of someone who's already uh, looped these eyelets before. And, and Dr. Sriji Patel has no financial interest in Sinsky hooks. We'll just confirm that. 
Uh, Ali. <laughs> Thank you for mentioning that. Yeah, just, that. just to clarify, um, Ali, let's bonus question. Let's transition to the clinic. I had a former fellow call me just this week and say, I did an acrios lens with Gore-Tex suture, and now I'm seeing them about a week out. It looks like the suture is not covered by the conjunctiva. What do I do, or do I need to do anything? What? Do, how urgent is it if I have to do something? And then what would I do surgically if I went in to fix this? I think it, it is a problem to have an exposed suture. So that's where you, you know, part of the purpose of this technique is to cover the suture so that you can avoid stuff like suture erosion and up the mitis through the suture tract, that sort of thing. So um, I would recommend going back into the OR, um, revising the peritomy and then reclosing the conge over the suture, just like you would say an exposed tube shunt or, or, or something like that. So the urgency is it's not an emergency. Um, I typically would maybe start some topical antibiotic drops to, to cover myself, but within the next you know week or two, go in and um, try to, to revise the peritomy to, to kind of reapproximate the conge. And if for whatever reason, there's not good enough cons. There are several things you can try, like a tutoplast or, or, or something to cover up that area. Again, if you probably shouldn't do this technique if your conjunctiva is not, um, I would say, naive enough to be able to kind of uh, to mobilize it easily. But uh, if you do get into that, that situation using um, a pass graft or something would be my kind of last resort if the cons won't, won't close over, over the top. I'm all about that naive conjunctiva. Conjunctiva naive enough that thinks the Lakers will win the title again next year. Um, Ajay, uh, as a naive Knicks fan, smart conjunctiva. Let's take that one yeah. step further. So let's say you did that. You're like, Mr. Ali, Dr. Ali, I went and fixed it. I went and closed it. And a week later, the suture eroded through the conjunctiva again. Now, what are you doing? Ali kind of referenced a couple of things, but what would you do now? Or what would you tell a former fellow now? So I think it, it all depends on what I did for the first step. If I wound up actually doing something like tutoplast or something like that, and it, it's still eroded, that would definitely be very concerning. And uh, I would actually think about changing the, the lens if that's the case, if I did all of those things and, and it's still getting those erosions. Um, I w would, if it was just like I reclosed the conge or something like that, I would try putting on tutoplast, uh, maybe even throwing amniotic membrane to see if there's any help with making the conjunctiva um, look a little better um, over it. But uh, if for some reason there's repeated erosion, I would be, and there's no exposure of the knot or anything like that. Um, one thing you could think about is if, I know some people do a scleral flap for um, the Gore-Tex, just so that way you don't have the uh, suture on the uh, very surface of the sclera. Um, that's always an option, but I think if, if you're going to go through all that, you might as well try a different technique to just decrease the chance of that erosion happening since there must be something wrong with the conjunctiva there. Sriji, I'm out of Acrius questions, so we're going to transition. And we're not going to talk about every IOL technique, but let's talk about the modified Yamani, which there's kind of different ways to do it. We're talking about the technique where people use um, trocars and forceps to deliver haptics of three-piece intraocular lenses to fixate a scleral fixate an intraocular lens. So let's start from scratch. What's your favorite way to hand off the IOL haptic to the forceps, the leading haptic and then the a trailing haptic? And then how do you prevent the first haptic from slipping while you're trying to deliver the trailing haptic? Sure. So I prefer um, the needle technique. You know, I'll usually with the forceps um, slide the uh, the 
leading haptic into the um, the needle uh, through the um, small scrotomy that I make. And then when I externalize that, you know, I'm lucky enough where typically I'll have, um, you know, I think actually all of us are typically have a fellow um, with us uh, while we're operating or a trained assistant. And so usually one of us will be, it'll be our job to make sure that we hold on to that uh, and to help prevent that from slipping uh, through while we're working on the other side. And usually as long as that end is fixated, not only does it provide stability, but it provides assurance that the lens won't try and go south while you're taking care of the uh, proximal haptic doing the same thing. And fellow luck is a double-edged sword, uh, as we all know. I'm just kidding. I love my fellows. Yeah. Uh, Ali, <laughs> let's say you deliver a haptic and then you start to notice bleeding internally from the ciliary body, presumably, or for wherever you deliver the haptic. Is there, what, what do you do at that point? Or if you see them post-operatively and there's hemorrhage, what are sort of, what's kind of your algorithm for how do you manage that? How long will you observe hemorrhage post-operatively? At what point do you intervene? And have you ever had to, for example, reposition or remove a lens because of persistent bleeding? I personally have not had to remove um, a lens for persistent bleeding from, say, like a, a tunnel, but I, I have had to do for, some, say, like an Uggie syndrome. So I think it's a slightly different uh, scenario. But, you know, vitreous hemorrhage after these techniques is actually pretty common. If you look at the, like, the initial series describing outcomes of these techniques, up to, you know, 10 to 15 percent will have some degree of transient vitreous hemorrhage. So I'll usually wait a month if there's, you know, if it's only a mild amount of hemorrhage, usually it'll clear. If it's a significant amount of hemorrhage, I would think you would notice it intraoperatively, um, and you know probably someone in anticoagulation. But I'd give it, I'd give it a good month and see if it'll clear. And if it's not clearing at that point, then you might need to clear out vitrectomy without actually touching the lens. If you do think it's like an UG syndrome type scenario, then you're you're talking more about exchanging it or repositioning completely. But I personally haven't had to to run into that. I think the the distance from the limbus that you're placing your uh, your tunnels or your sutures is super important for this. That's why for the acreos, it's usually three millimeters back. For a lot of these tunnel techniques, it's at least two and a half back. So I think um, that critical step of measuring at the very beginning is probably you know as important as any of the other steps. Ajay, I don't know how you became the things go wrong guy. We've been talking about complications, but this <laughs> is something that really can go wrong. What do you do if you see a patient postoperatively, again, your fellow calls you, this will never happen to you, and says, hey, Dr. Curian, I was just looking, and I can see the haptic poking out from the conjunctiva on one side, and then I went with the cotton tip, and I can touch it. There's no conjunctiva over it. Do I need to do something? What do I do, and what are kind of my options for managing this? So I think this is pretty similar to um, the scenario with the exposed suture. It's something that I do think you need to do something for because it is certainly an endophthalmitis risk. Um, I, I have had one patient who developed endophthalmitis after uh, a scleral fixated um, technique uh, because of conjurosion uh, in between visits. And so it's it's definitely a real risk that's, that's there that could happen. Uh, so I do think it needs to be addressed. So like I least said, it's not an emergency, but there's some degree of urgency. I would start them on drops, uh, antibiotic drops, and then probably plan for them to be uh, addressed fairly quickly within the next week or two. Uh, this is something that you could do in the minor, um, the way that I approach it. So usually I'll, I'll make a pyridomy and thread that um, haptic out, uh, sorry, back under the conch when I'm lifting my pyridomy over it. 
And then after that, I usually inspect it really carefully. There's almost always a kink that's present or an issue with the bulb if you decide to flange it. Um, and so a lot of times I'll just trim right behind um, whatever kink or bulb there is and then just close up the conjure over it again. Um, so far from doing that, I haven't had any re-exposure. Um, prior to doing that, I've had some re-exposures and I put on a scleral uh, path graft over it and sutured it on and didn't have any issues with that. But uh, since I started trimming the, the kink uh, or the bulb, I haven't had any issues with exposure again after the first one. It's funny you use the word kink, Ajay, because you can't spell nicks without kink, and the nicks have been working the kinks out for at least 20 years. Uh, Sriji, <laughs> uh, sorry, I spent the last 30 seconds trying to formulate that joke. I think it landed pretty well. Uh, <laughs> Sriji, it, it's could've, ironic could've that you use the term... Different oh, I, I, I would never do that. Uh, this is a family-friendly <laughs> retina program. Uh, Sriji, I'm sorry you're stuck with us, first of all. Second of all, uh, it's funny that you used the word deflating earlier because one of the issues that can happen after both acrios and modified Yamani techniques is people say, well, the eye is soft. I have hypotony. How much hypotony is too much? So I, I, Ali referenced vitreous hemorrhage in the modified Yamani series. Well, in the original acrio series, there was hypotony as well. But what level of hypotony at the end of the case is tolerable for you? And at what point do you consider doing something else for the sclerotomies, for example, if they're 23 or 25 gauge or even 27 gauge, if you feel like they're leaking? So I'm pretty, um, I'm, con I'm pretty conservative when it comes to if I feel the sclerotomies are leaking, I'll, I'll try and suture them closed. I, uh, I, don't, I truly have a distaste for postoperative hypotony because I feel like it can really help obscure the results of an otherwise good surgery. Um, you know, with choroidals and vitreous hemorrhage, and I feel like you have to babysit these people a lot, a lot more than you would otherwise. And so, if I have any concern about leaking sclerotomies or IOP at the end of the case, I'm pretty aggressive about making sure that everything is sealed tightly. Um, and this includes um, the sclerotomies and also obviously the uh, the corneal wound. Um, in terms of how much hypotony I tolerate, uh, you know, I would say that. Assuming that there's obviously no intraoperative bleeding that you're noting or, or anything of that nature, and there's no, um, you know, active uh, tube shunt or anything like that, I'm okay with the slightly low pressure as long as you're no, no concern that it's going to continue actively leaking after you put, um, you know, the patch on and you see the patient the next day. Yeah, Sri, that's a great point. I like to use what's called the quote unquote the raisin test, or really just as the eye form test. So I think if you clamp the infusion at the end of the case and kind of take a look at the eye, is it holding pressure? I think it's okay if it's a little soft, but if it, it can't be collapsing, right? It's got, it can't be leaking to the point where the eye is just not maintaining shape. So that's where I think your highest risk for choroidals. Um, Ali, bonus question. If you are planning to do something like close karate, like Sriji said, any recommendations for suture material? Do you ever use glue? I've heard of some of my anterior segment colleagues using glue. What's kind of your preferred technique? Uh, I don't, I haven't used glue, but, um, I think that, that kind of makes sense. I think what you're always worried about is your new seizure pass is somehow cutting your Gore-Tex and then you're kind oh, of starting all over. So, yeah. So, um, I just use a vehicle suture and then, um, just try to get that, that needle pass to be as close to the edge of the sclerotomy as possible to try to avoid the Gore-Tex. Um, but you know, it's, some degree blind once you're you know you're passing it through so i try to use 25 gauge um 
at rare cases 27 to kind of avoid this issue and then try to uh, slightly oversize the knot so that once you really dunk it in, um, you avoid the leakage issue. But if, if it was temporary hypotony or cutting the suture, I choose temporary hypotony. So I, I very rarely um, will pass that extra suture unless, like you said, it's like completely deflated. Great point. Ajay, one of our mentors, Sandra Debovi, used to say certain scenarios are suboptimal. I think cutting the knot is suboptimal. And for the last question, <laughs> this is the bonus question. This is another suboptimal situation. So let's say your fellow signs up a pseudophagic retinal detachment and you get in and you start doing your vitrectomy. And as soon as you start your vitrectomy, the lens starts tipping towards the posterior segment. It starts falling. Do you leave the patient aphagic? What do you do with that lens in that scenario? How do you remove it? And how much do you blame your fellow for a poor preoperative exam versus just accepting that sometimes these things aren't predictable? So I think that, um, you know, sometimes you see this a lot of times. There's uh, some complicated cataract surgery that uh, happened prior to a retinal detachment. And so it's not a, a very uncommon uh, scenario where you have a mobile lens. Uh, if, it, if it's mobile, I try to just leave it uh in the in the sulcus or try to reposition it and, and keep moving forward if it falls all the way to the back um i've on rare occasion just fixated it if it's a three-piece um at the same time as the surgery that i'm doing for the rd um, but most of the time i'm removing that lens and um just reattaching the retina and explain to the patient afterwards that they were going to see very poorly until we get a new lens in there um but since they were having a retinal detachment surgery, they were going to have a tamponade in the eye for, for a period of time anyway. And so most of the time they're very understanding that it's something that had to be done to reattest the retina and uh, are understanding about it being a staged procedure. Um, and so so almost almost always I'll wind up taking out that lens, but if it just happens to be a three-piece that I can fixate pretty easily and the cornea is like perfectly clear after the retinal detachment repair, I would think about fixating that. Sriji, any other thoughts on that topic? I think, um, yeah, I agree completely with what Ajay was saying. It can be tough, you know, to put this on the fellow because sometimes you don't see these things until you lay the patient back and you see that that lens is starting to really wobble. Um, if I can keep it in place, I'll always err on that side um, because, you know, it's better to have a bicameral, bicameral patient, especially when you're putting in tamponade. Um, but Otherwise, if it's not possible, I would ex I'll probably just externalize the lens, refocus my attention on what we're there for, which is the retinal detachment, and then, like Ajay says, just explain to the patient, you know, this is something that sometimes happens, but we can get a lens in there, um, as we spent most of this evening talking about in many different ways after the fact. Yeah, and Ali, I think as co-fellows, we would have said this would maybe be a partial technical foul on the fellow, but maybe not a full technical foul on the fellow. Um, <laughs> You know, the last point I would make, you guys references, I think if you're going to take the lens out, I think it's really important to make sure whatever wound you take it out of is air, is pretty airtight, because if you're going to go to air later, you don't want to discover later that that wound is not holding because you're just going to have tampon. Let's say you're using oil for this case, things are just going to be drawn forward. So you really want to make sure that wound is airtight before you kind of move on to other steps of the case. So you have good fluidics and, and then good, um, you know, don't end up with just air gushing out of the eye when you go to air uh, to flatten the retina if you do you do a fluid air exchange. So, guys, I think we did it. I learned everything there is to know about intraocular lens complications. Unfortunately, I've seen many of these, so uh, it was more of a review of previous poor attempts than a, than a learning lesson. Um, you know, Ajay, I don't really know what to ask you because the Knicks are so bad, um, but I will let Sriji and Ali 
kind of duke it out. We're not even going to talk about LA's sports teams that have won. Ali, the Rams are five and two. Your other team, the Seahawks, are five and one. But Sriji, he's a closet Bucks fan. He's five and two as well. Who's got the best team of those three? Sriji, you go first. Uh, I would say it's the Buccaneers, and I'll tell you many, many reasons why. We uh, are not even at our full force yet. We've been plagued by injuries. We just added Antonio Brown. The offense is gelling, not having had a full offseason to really get together. And um, I think that we're in a division where we can really capitalize and get a top seed. So I feel strong. But I feel I feel good about our, our chances here. You know, you had me sold with the football cliche about played with injuries, but then you said we just got Antonio Brown, which is not anything a team has uttered in recent years that has helped them. Uh, I'll yeah, be, not, it hasn't been a good thing since the 2018, but... Uh, it's been a couple years. Ali, what do you think? What's the, Who's the best of those three teams? Uh, I mean, I've been focusing so much on the Lakers and the Dodgers say that I haven't really thought about that. Oh, no, you can't people. segue that way. That's cheating. <laughs> cheating. Wow. Another, another, uh, another time for that uh, uh, dual championship, first time since 1988. Oh uh, congratulations to Los Angeles Dodgers, particularly Clayton Kershaw, who finally got his ring. And thank you, Boston, for Mookie Betts, because he is by far the best player in baseball. But, I think I just um, threw up a little Jay, bit. Jay, that's a rough conversation for you. Oh. But um, uh, for the NFL, I think of those teams, the Seahawks are actually the best of those. As much as I love the Rams and would hope for uh, a three-peat for L.A., as much as that would kill you, Jay, um, the Seattle Seahawks <laughs> are probably um, the better team simply because of uh, Russell Wilson's honestly probably top two quarterback in the NFL right, right now. And if they can not have a running back stay injured for you know more than a few games i think they'll be all right in the end so I, i'm picking the seahawks out of there but the the nfc west is an outstanding division so it's going to be uh rough to get out of there while the bucks i think are going to be okay coming out of their their division ajay i mean the new york teams are combined one and 13 uh the giants are still only a game and a half out i don't know if you have any opinions on this subject except next in 2021 um, I'm just looking forward to the NFF to the NBA draft. It's uh, it's like the Super Bowl for Knicks fans. <laughs> oh God! All right, guys, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for staying up late with me, uh, Ali Khan, Ajay Korea, and Triji Patel. Thanks for playing this game. Uh, vitrectomy complications. If guys, if you like this episode, you heard it, you thought it was useful, uh, please let us know. We can come back with more of these episodes. You guys were fantastic. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Okay. Have a good night. As always, you can find this episode and all other episodes on our website, retinapodcast.com. That's R-E-T-I-N-A podcast.com. We have 269 episodes spread over four plus years, and they're all available on the website and sorted by category. You can get those episodes directly to your mobile device by subscribing to the Apple Podcasts or Android Podcasts app. If you prefer to get it to your email, then what you can do is hit the subscribe link on our website, and that will allow you to plug in your email, and you get updates on the most recent episodes as they come out. Remember that you can reach us in various ways. We're on Facebook, we are on Twitter, at Retina Podcast, and we have a contact us link on our website. You can also email us directly at retinapodcast at gmail.com. Do you like this episode? Do you like complication type episodes? Let us know. Let us know what we should do for the future. Also, let us know what we can do better. We also appreciate positive reviews you're able to leave in the Apple Podcast or Android Podcast app. 
Many thanks to Drs. Khan, Patel, and Korean for joining me for this Complications Rapid Fire episode. Many thanks to Drs. Mike Minacasa, Angela Chang, and Louis Kai for handling the social media and production for this and other podcast episodes. Thanks to all of you for the patient care you provide, the articles you read and publish, and the conversations you inspire here. This is Jay Schreeder signing off. Feeling. This is straight from the car. <laughs>